0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark Gagne. I'm here with Trevor Clifford. How are you feeling today, Mr. Clifford?
1: Uh, I feel all right. I feel like Stone Cold Steve Austin at the beach.
0: (laughs) That's a pretty good image. Uh, (laughs) I feel like straight-edge Dave Thomas. Oh. square patty lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if Stone Cold Steve, like, basically...
1: He's not even associated with cold things, but why not? <laughs> would he melt at the beach? Who knows? I think he would stay cold. Yeah. I mean, he Probably. has to, right?
0: <laughs> nice. So, uh, yeah. Episode, I don't know. We'll, not we'll put a number for it, but yeah, <laughs> shitty book <laughs> reports, a podcast where Trevor and I talk about a book. Each of us talk about a book. Um, so I thought, you know we normally play a game, or we'll have like a topic of discussion to start, but so this week, I thought, you know, I was thinking, in order to become like bookheads like we are, or you know addicts, <laughs> you have to <laughs> I would say addicts, yeah, you have to obtain the books somehow, and then you know hoard them forever <laughs> like do you do you have a favorite bookstore?
1: I definitely, I have several favorite bookstores, yeah. Um, usually, it's all, usually it's location, location, location. It has to do with, like, where I'm living and where I'm from and stuff like that, but. Um,
0: yeah, it could be your favorite if, you know, you've yeah. been there once and you got to get on a plane.
1: Actually, that might not be true. I went to, you <laughs> oh, know, I've okay. been to a few bookstores where I was like, damn, you know, if I could come <laughs>
0: here every day, I would. <laughs> I'm just not well traveled enough, um, but yeah, I thought we could today we could talk about our favorite features that a bookstore has. Maybe not specific stores, but I'm sure they'll come up for examples. Right. Like, I want, you know,
1: <laughs> yeah. So Mark, if I'm uh, judging before we started the podcast, I, I knew that we were going to talk about this. I'm I'm waiting to I'm wondering to see if we're going to have any overlap in our favorite bookstore features.
0: Okay. I think uh, just looking at my collection, you know, if I'm judging by quantity, my number one bookstore is like Goodwill, <laughs> or like Savers or like, you know, thrift stores, because I'm yeah. all about like super cheap paperbacks. But I think today I'll exclude that and just talk about, you know, independent bookstores. So, right. yeah, yeah I, know, I, didn't,
1: I didn't put any names in. I just these are the features um, that I enjoy. Okay. So my like a feature that I enjoy is and this is. I feel like, I don't know, this might not be unique to me, but I maybe this is unique. I like employ I like bookstores that have employee recommendations, but I never take the recommendations. Like, <laughs> like literally, I like I like to see what they said if I already read the book. That like really excites me. If they're like, oh, check out, you know, the Hobbit. I'm like, what does this person think about the Hobbit? But um I think it's also one of those things that employee recommendations it's almost like a like a feel that like the store is a nice place, you know, because they're like listening to everybody and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, they have personalities. <laughs> but I
1: ser like I seriously now that we've talked about it and I've said it out loud, I feel like I should take the employee recommendations more seriously. But it's a feature that I like that I never use.
0: I had that on my list, too. I said, you know, got to have staff recommendations. Um, mm-hmm. You got to get an idea of what type of crowd they've got there, you know
1: that's Um, true maybe
0: i take the recommendations if it's something i've never heard of and then they like they name drop some shit that i really love right like that that sometimes happens you know it's good like they have a little blurb or something like you know Mm -hmm. a couple sentences on like a note card next to it yeah for sure but you
1: do bring up a good point like i don't think this has ever happened to me but if the employee recommendations were all just like for books that i think are awful or i don't want to read i'd be like what is this place (laughs) 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 you know employee recommendations of like every you know those like i think we talked about them before those like romance novels where it's like 400 in the series and stuff like
0: that like what if all the employee (laughs) recommendations were just those (laughs) Like specific numbers, yeah. yeah, you gotta check out number like three hundred and twenty seven yeah sex cowboys um, <laughs> in space
1: number six thousand
0: so uh, yeah, that's a good one. I think I had it, yeah, those are my top four um so for me i I like it, I like when bookstores are jam packed and like messy,
1: mm-hmm.
0: like you know shit everywhere, all different vintages and conditions, like pages stark white to like dehydrated yellow <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. i want the shelves i want the shelves to look like they're about to collapse yeah
1: yeah i said um i said something sort of similar i said that um i like the right mix of organization and chaos so like i like to be able to know what section i'm looking at and kind of like maybe dwindle it down to some sort of alphabetical by author or something like that but on top of that there should be sort of like crammed full of weird you know stuff like like let's put it this way in a bookstore there shouldn't be like extra space between the bottom of the shelf and the books they should put yes, like yes. other books on top <laughs>
0: <laughs> i had that covered too uh like you know some the, you need stuff there shouldn't be any space on the yeah. walls, you know.
1: <laughs> and definitely and definitely two books deep. Yeah. yeah. Like the second <laughs> row back there. That's the best feeling. I mean, I feel like it rarely happens, but it's such a good feeling when you're when you see a book that you want to get and it's in that back row, like behind the the front row of
0: books. It's like, "Oh yeah, I found it." <laughs> yeah. Uncovered it. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So uh what yeah, what's your next one? Um I
1: said I like I like every bookstore to have just um a selection of new or used classics that you, there's just crazy deals on classics. Like it's just the best feeling in the world to buy, you know, Don Quixote or something for like 3 bucks.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And I and that's just something that I it like if I go to a bookstore and buy a brand new book or something that just came out or something that, you know, or or an expensive used book that I've been looking for for a while, you're definitely going to get more of my money if I can throw on, you know, some sort of like Penguin Classics that's like a dollar.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I definitely need those. <laughs> yeah, and it helps, you know, spread those the really awesome stories to the next generation if it's, if they're cheap like that.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, um, I've, I've definitely, I've bought, um you know, I've bought, oh, I've, you know, I've bought a copy of a book being like, I know I have this somewhere in my possessions, but it's fine to have another one. A <laughs> loner. A loner, yeah. A loner.
0: yeah. <laughs> okay, that's a good one. Uh, My next one, this is crucial for me. I don't, I don't know why, but they have, I like getting a free bookmark because I like run out of shit to use You know, (laughs) very good point. Uh, Yeah, it's cool if they have like the bookstore has a cool logo or whatever. And I don't know, uh, one of my local bookstores here is good at that. Or sometimes they'll have like uh, just a bunch of ones from maybe some throwback 90s ones with like crazy colors and holograms on them. You remember those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, No, you're all
1: right, though. Like that's that's like a good feeling. Like when you check out at, at the bookstore and it's like that's like the final. Thing like you're about to leave, and they put the they put their bookmark like in your in your new book, and they say here you go. That's like the end of the transaction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, my next one is I like my bookstore employees to be old, and I feel like I want to feel like they're always there.
0: <laughs> like just so, left there.
1: Yeah, like all of my favorite bookstores, the employees are like pretty old. And I feel like, you know, maybe they, you just turn off the light and then they fall asleep. (laughs) And then when you turn on the light, they also wake up.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Have you ever been in one where uh, they have like a resident pet, like a cat? Yes,
1: absolutely. Cat is, cat is definitely, that's not on my list, but it's definitely a good, a good (laughs) shout. I mean,
0: they work there. That's what they do. I mean, we call them workers. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Nice. Uh, I like that imagery, though. Yeah. You they, you turn off the light, turn the sign to <laughs> close, and they just kind of, like, curl up in a chair and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> throw on the nightcap or whatever. Yep. Uh, the point so, my of last nightcap. one. Yeah. My second to last one. Uh, what's that? Penultimate?
1: Pen-ulti- penultimate, yeah.
0: Mm, yeah, good, yeah. Good
1: use of penultimate.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, so we kind of covered it a little bit, but like I want some cool art or some posters or some vintage book covers on mm-hmm. whatever space isn't taken up by bookshelves right. or like, you know, or the shit like even when they have like bookshelves all, all the way almost to the ceiling, you got to hang some shit like in that last like foot of wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, I want no no blank space, no white walls, maybe like a sick ass like themed mural like some libraries have like my like early childhood school library had like a where the wild things are mural nice you know some themed literary stuff
1: yeah definitely no no big white walls or anything yeah yeah (laughs) um my next one would be unattainable first or signed editions so like i like that you know i i feel like a lot of bookstores that i've visited it's like there's just a little shelf off to the incredibly old employee who's always there And (laughs) and there's just like either a little glass case or like a shelf or whatever where it's like, yeah, this book is like a 100 bucks, but it's like signed by the author or like a first edition of, you know, like of Mice and Men or something like that. And you're just like, yeah, yeah, it, it gives some sort of like ancient sort of wisdom or legitimacy to just the feel of the place, I guess.
0: Yeah, that is really cool. you ever bought anything like that no i have
1: i've (laughs) never not yet yeah that's gonna be have ones
0: like do you have ones like marked in your mind like okay when i strike it big i'm going back and buying this shit
1: yeah i do because um when i was living and working in new york city i uh in midtown and i hope to god that it's still there i'm pretty sure it'll i I hope it'll be
0: there for a long time just to warn you the way the fact that you're mentioning it someone might go scoop it (laughs) No, so no. Don't one. give the don't give the address.
1: No, no. I'm not talking to, I'm not going to tell them which book. I'm just okay. going to say Good. somewhere in Midtown. Look somewhere out. in Midtown there's like a there's a I used to work at a in an office where near there there was um like a bookstore that was exclusively rare books. So it would okay. be like it would be like books that have been like signed by the Queen of England and you know like crazy <laughs> stuff. But they had cool stuff, man. Like, like, they had, like, first, they in, like, their window, they would have, like, first edition Gravity's Rainbow and, like, a lot of Faulkner and stuff like that. And it's just, like, Damn. I, I used to go in there on lunch breaks and just be, like, I can't afford anything here, but I like to chill. <laughs> <laughs>
0: just pretend it's your library, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, maybe take a visit there sometime yeah. down the road. Buy them yeah. out. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Okay, so my, my last one, um, also crucial, gotta have like a cool soundtrack or some music plan, like maybe some ambient or like classical or- Yep. I'm kind of in indie rock or something. Something that keeps you there browsing, makes you curious about who runs the place. Like it's almost like staff recommendations. Like yep. you get a feel for who's there.
1: Yeah, I and put like, I put you you know, the same thing. I put quiet mu- mood music. It's gotta be yeah, like, yeah, slightly like,
0: quiet. Like, but if I like walked into a bookshop and they're playing some crazy, like Kraut rock shit, like can or like Kate Bush or something, you know, I'm, I'm for sure buying, I'm going to, I'm for sure buying something. (laughs) Yeah. For like, that's like, I have
1: a story about how, that's like a delicate situation because it can actually go the other way. One time I went in to another bookstore in New York City that I really love. Shout out to Alabaster Bookshop. I almost feel like he like there was like a young employee. He wasn't an old employee. He was like a young guy and he was playing like experimental noise jazz like <laughs> in a bookstore and I was like not that this mu- like I don't disrespect your your love for experimental music, but I can't like browse books with this noise music happening like like it's like and, stressful yeah and i just like started yeah. i, I kind of got mad i was like this person should not work here like and i knew it, he was like behind the he was the only one there in the store today and i was like i know that you chose the music
0: and you're messing up yeah you're messing it up this isn't the radio yeah, yeah. <laughs> what would your uh what would your ideal playlist be if you like owned and operated a bookstore
1: Oh, I think, yeah, I think maybe, I I think, I think I almost want the music to sound like slightly dated. So like recordings that maybe, you know, sound a little bit scratchy or from like an older time or something like that, or, or definitely like I can, I could definitely get down with like no lyrics maybe like just, just sort of like instrumental, like kind of quiet, um, yeah. It's like, it's almost like a, a different version of elevator music where you need that browse
0: music. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Did you have any more? I think that was my last one.
1: No, I don't really have any more, but I am in the course of this conversation. I'm really uh, surprised that like neither of us are, are like pumped for like author events. I mean, I've gone to a few in my time, but like, it's sort of interesting. Like, I don't know are they that important to me if they didn't make my list when I was thinking hmm. of, of this stuff, I, you, you know,
0: like book signing. I have never been to one. Yeah. Book, signs, book stuff signing, stuff like
1: that. Um, they can be really nice, but honestly, a lot of the big box bookstores have sort of taken them over. Like, I feel like the ones that I've gone to have been at like Barnes and Noble. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Um, I guess one that it wasn't, we didn't talk about yet. And this will be my last one is, um, I really like to be able to pre-order a new book at like a used bookstore or like a family owned bookstore. Um, it was a good experience for me. One time I was in Maine and I ordered, I pre-ordered, um, the Murakami book color, colorless. It's a really hard book name to say because the, oh yeah, colorless <laughs> Sudu Tazaki and his pilgrimage or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, uh, they gave it to me a day early before its release, <laughs> and I and they. I don't even think that they knew that it was a day before its official release. But I was like pumped, like I was like <laughs> I was like I had this before it's out.
0: Yeah, uh, that's like a video game you started like grinding whatever <laughs> your levels behind beyond everyone else.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> twenty four hours advanced notice and honestly that book yeah. that that is a great book and it's and you can read it in like two days so i was our, i was probably halfway done when everyone was buying it
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice so yeah um i mean i didn't have anything else on my list but i guess i want to say i mean su- everyone out there support your local indie bookstores for sure yeah amazon paid zero dollars and uh federal income tax <laughs> this yeah, year forget so, that uh, support support the local ones
1: even though even though you know don't shame yourself too much because we've all ordered things from amazon where it's like the book costs one cent plus shipping
0: some of those <laughs> yeah
1: some of those come from bookstores though don't they like some of them yeah, come yeah, from
0: do. local bookstores yeah you know they they it's a it's a penny they charge four bucks for shipping they pay dollar fifty for shipping and you yeah. know, helps them out.
1: Yeah, so yeah, that's my that's my answer to Amazon. But yeah, um, support your local bookstores, and maybe you know people who are listening who are active with us on Twitter, or Instagram, or anything. Tell us about your favorite bookstores. Hopefully, we can hear about those. But uh, I'm sure we'll be tweeting about it as well. Um, but since uh, I think I think you're first this week, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: All right, you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> Okay, so I've been struggling with this intro all week, but, you know, here it goes. Okay. Um, so a common a common theme in history is the value of hindsight and how we can cause harm to ourselves through our imperfect understanding of what's safe. Like, for example, Mercury is bad for you. Like, we know that now. Hmm. But <laughs> the, fir- the first emperor of China... Um, he died in 20 and, uh, 210 BC after ingesting mercury because he believed it would grant him eternal life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our parents still played with that shit in their bare hands in science class. Yeah. You know, a couple thousand years later, uh, it took a really long time for the whole, like, you know, mercury is dangerous thing to, to catch on. So there's some hindsight there, uh, Another, ex- another one, like another example, like the Curies, they didn't know that prolonged exposure to uh, ionizing radiation was harmful to the body. Mm-hmm. Like Marie, she died of a plastic anemia because of that. Uh, and uh, I mean, Pierre died because his head was run over by a fucking wagon wheel <laughs> while crossing the street in Paris. But that's, you know, more hindsight, like always look both ways. Um, Don't fuck around with radiation and look both ways. Yeah. Uh, Europeans thought that tomatoes were deadly for like 200 years because they ate, because some people ate them off of pewter plates and the Mm -hmm. acidic juices caused lead to leach out of there. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And uh, yeah, now we know. And uh, another nice 1970s modern example jarts. Jarts were dangerous. Who (laughs) knows?
1: I don't know what jarts are.
0: Lawn darts? Oh see lawn darts. Oh yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I've th- seen them. They were name brand jarts. Uh, but anyways <laughs> <laughs> hindsight is is valuable. Like um I was gonna ask you, what do you think is a common thing today that someday will go like, God damn, that was dangerous or that was really stupid?
1: I think one that comes up to- like one that I've heard come up in conversation is like radia like chemotherapy and like radiation therapy for cancer. I think, you know, maybe even though it's incredibly, I think a lot of people don't realize how advanced some radiation therapy is nowadays. Like we're shooting lasers at tumors and it's really like amazing. (laughs) But I think, you know, a 100 years from now, um, God willing that we like cure cancer or something like crazy like that, people will be like, so in the early 2000s, you just, you know shot wave after wave of radiation at each other
0: (laughs) yeah yeah you're sick and your hair fell out and yeah
1: yeah exactly
0: hopefully hopefully we get to that point
1: yeah i think we will um and i you know uh, something else that i heard about that i don't really like to think about too much is that our world is very um we we aren't aware of how permeated with plastics our world is even, like, mm-hmm. even like the water you drink and stuff like that has, like, weird, like, microplastics in it and stuff like that. Um, so that's something that people will maybe be like, dude, why didn't you calm the hell down with oil and plastics? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Once we get those uh, carbon nanotube filters for all our water. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the theme of what I'm going to be talking about this week. Um, so the book I have is an important one and you know despite being outdated i think it has a lot of good lessons in it about bringing attention to these kind of dangerous things before they kill us all uh so i'm dabbling in non-fiction again this week but wow. this is a work yeah yeah some heady stuff so this is a work it toes the line between the non-fictional scientific world and the world of powerful narrative literature
1: okay and
0: I think it's a great example also of effective written advocacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's a book that's, you know, widely credited for launching the modern environmental movement. Okay. Uh, so I'm talking about Rachel Carson's 1962 book, Silent Spring.
1: Okay. Yes. I'm so ready to hear you talk about this because <laughs> I think I read maybe one article about this and I was like, the effect that this book had is astronomical,
0: yeah, right? Yeah, it's huge.
1: But it's really interesting that it's just not, you know, you know, it's only mentioned on obscure uh, podcasts.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'm gonna get into all that today. Mm. Uh, so Rachel Carson, she was an American scientist. She mm-hmm. was a marine biologist, actually, like George Costanza. Uh, <laughs> and she later became an author. <laughs> She was born in Pennsylvania in 1907. She had a huge interest in the environment as well as, you know, writing at an early age. She studied she ended up studying biology at the Pennsylvania College for Women, and she got her master's degree in zoology at John uh, Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And she actually wanted to pr- pursue her PhD there, but she had to drop out in 1934 to help support her family. And like, could you imagine? Trying to earn a PhD during the Great Depression. (laughs)
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah, and what the fuck that would have been like. And it's terrible to have to say as well, but also as a woman during the Great Depression, Mm -hmm. trying to get a PhD. Yeah, okay.
0: Yeah. In a, in a, yes, in a scientific field too. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that, I mean, shows you how strong of a character she had. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so she dropped out of school eventually. Um, And she started working for the U S Bureau of Fisheries Mm and she worked there. She worked on educational programs for garnering public interest in aquatic life and, you know, the work that the Bureau did, but she moved up the ranks there eventually to chief editor of publications. Uh, but she eventually, you know, she outgrew this and the articles and the essays that she was producing on this smaller scale, they were getting the attention of major publishing houses. And, you know, she decided to shift to writing full-time. Mm-hmm. So uh, through this, she produced a trilogy of informational yet poetic nature books uh, focused on the sea in the early 1950s. Um, so like 1951's The Sea Around Us, which was very successful. It won a National Book Award. It was serialized in The New Yorker. Um, so, the, yeah, this one brought her a ton of success and a reputation for producing, like, interesting, sci- like heavily scientific, but also very poetic examinations of environmental topics. hmm So, uh, she pivoted from there, and in the mid-50s, she decided to transition to uh, conservational work and focus on specific environmental issues that she cared about. And, you know, it was here that she found her true calling, which for her was shedding light on the dangers of synthetic pesticides. Okay. Specifically, and I'm, I'm going to butcher this, but dichloro, dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane, otherwise known as DDT. DDT, yep. Yeah. So this is something that she had been concerned about for a while, but didn't really get any traction in her early publishing career. Uh, but, you know, she decided to focus on it exclusively and, you know, try to let the public know just what their bodies and their health were being uh, subjected to against their will, basically, um, by, you know, indiscriminate spraying of pesticides. And, and, you know, this is the body of research that produced Silent Spring.
1: Okay. Because DD, so. DDT is like the – is it the, the orange stuff? the one that like they like used to spray on people's yards and stuff like that
0: yeah yeah it was uh it was booming in the yeah 40s, i don't 50s. I,
1: I don't know if it's a reference to the specific like chemical but there's a great scene in the movie um tree of life by terrence malick if you've ever seen that movie and uh it has like Brad Pitt in it and stuff like that and there's a great scene yeah. where it's the 50s and the kids the truck comes by and sprays the yard with ddt and all the kids love it cuz it's like this big orange cloud and they're like playing yeah. in it and the parents are
0: laughing and stuff like that. it's a great scene it's a really good scene yep. so yeah i mean that's kind of that's i mean that's a little bit stylized and whatever but i mean i want to i don't
1: know if that i don't know if it is stylized cuz one of my maybe. one of my older uh managers at my other job told me that that re- they really did used to like spray things in the yard and you would just go play in it <laughs>
0: Really yeah yeah for he's real. still he's still alive when yeah when he um, saw
1: when he saw that scene in the movie he was like he was like hundred percent
0: accurate. oh shit okay um anyways, you know I want to read a section from an early chapter here that kind of introduces you to her writing style and like kind of the focus of the book okay it took hundreds of millions of years to produce the life that now inhabits the earth. Eons of time in which that developing and evolving and diversifying life reached a state of adjustment and balance with its surroundings. The environment, rigorously shaping and directing the life it supported, contained elements that were hostile as well as supporting. Certain rocks gave out dangerous radiation. Even within the light of the sun, from which all life draws its energy, there were shortwave radiations with power to injure. Given time, not in years, but in millennia, life adjusts and a balance has been reached. For time is the essential ingredient, but in the modern world, there is no time. The rapidity of change and the speed with which new situations are created follow the impetuous and heedless pace of man, rather than the deliberate pace of nature. Radiation is no longer merely the background radiation of rocks, the bombardment of cosmic rays, the ultraviolet of the sun that have existed before there was any life on earth, Radiation is now the unnatural creation of man's tampering with the atom. The chemicals to which life is asked to make its adjustment are no longer merely the calcium and silica and copper and all the rest of the minerals washed out of the rocks and carried in rivers to sea. They are the synthetic creations of man's inventive mind, brewed in his laboratories and having no counterparts in nature. To adjust to these chemicals would require time on the scale that is nature's. It would require not merely the years of a man's life, but the life of generations. And even this were it by some miracle possible would be futile for the new chemicals come from our laboratories in an endless stream. Almost 500 annually find their way into actual use in the United States alone. The figure is staggering and its implications are not easily grasped 500 new chemicals to which the bodies of men and animals are required somehow to adapt each year, chemicals totally outside the limits of biologic experience. Among them are many that are used in man's war against nature. Since the mid-1940s, over 200 basic chemicals have been created for use in killing insects, weeds, rodents, and other organisms described in the modern vernacular as pests, and they're sold under several thousand different brand names. These sprays, dusts, and aerosols are now applied almost universally to farms, gardens, forests, and homes, non-selective chemicals that have the power to kill every insect, the good and the bad, to still the songs of birds and the leaping of fish in the streams. To coat the leaves with a deadly film and to linger on in soil, all this, though the intended target may be only a few weeds or insects, can anyone believe it is possible to lay down such a barrage of poisons on the surface of the earth without making it unfit for all life? They should be called insecticide, insecticides. Insecticides. They should not be called insecticides, but biocides. The whole process of spraying seems caught up in an endless spiral. Since DDT was released for civilian use a process of escalation has been going on in which ever more toxic chemicals must be found this has happened because insects in a triumphant vindication of darwin's principle of the survival of the fittest have evolved have evolved super races immune to the particular insecticide used hence a deadlier one has always has always to be developed and then a deadlier one than that it has happened also because, for reasons to be described later, destructive insects often undergo a flareback, or resurgence after spraying, in numbers greater than before. Thus the chemical war is never won, and all life is caught in its violent crossfire. Hmm. So, you know, that's a taste of what the book's like. The
1: book is putting it's... me on edge, man.
0: <laughs> that's what it is. Dude, it's, uh, I mean, it's scientific, but it's it's so much more than that. It, it, it like, uh... It's almost like horror. And, you know, mm-hmm. like it's a lot of information, but it's all, it's all propped up by a really strong narrative. So it's not dry. Mm-hmm. You know, she starts out with a fable about nature presenting a world where the vibrancy of nature has gone quiet due to the interference of man. And from there on, it's essentially a catalog uh, of the more prevalent synthetic pesticides that were uh, around at that time you know, their chemical composition and the negative effects they can and have had on different levels, like to plants, animals and humans, like, you know, not the intended targets.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm taking a lot of comfort that this book is from slightly from the past. But I'm <laughs> sure there's a book shelf. There's a book on shelves now in 2019. That's uh, just as scary, but
0: yeah, <laughs> I bet it was inspired by this one.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, you know, even though the concerns here are outdated, and I, I'll say not all, but some of them have been dealt with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll get it more into that later, but you can still read this book today, almost, you know, 60 years later, and place yourself in that time. Mm-hmm. And, like, the value of reading it now is less about the specific call to action, but the way that she goes about it. She's arguing for – she doesn't argue for the ban of them. She argues for intelligent control mm-hmm. you know um, and uh, like I said it, it's, a, it's a great example of written advocacy you know she's direct but oddly poetic especially considering the subject matter and you know she keeps you interested and she keeps you thinking we need to do something about this mm-hmm. and you know this book probably inspired a whole generation of environmental scientists and, and the like and like I said there's There's parts of this book that almost read like the beginning of The Stand, but it's (laughs) documenting (laughs) real events.
1: Hey, maybe uh, maybe, uh,
0: King was inspired. Maybe. I mean, he's a constant reader, right? Yeah. The constant (laughs) reader. I'm sure he's read this. So I'll say, uh, yeah, getting getting more into that about The Stand, I'll say, so like, you know, during the years before this book came out, uh, the USDA, they were carrying out multiple efforts to eradicate invasive sp- insect species like fire ants, uh, gypsy moths, and the uh, Japanese beetles. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these involved widespread aerial spraying of DDT and other pesticides from, you know, crop dusting planes. And, you know, this was happening over, st- like, state-owned land, but also, you know, private land, too. Mm-hmm. And... I want to read that section now about the Japanese beetle eradication efforts because it's, it's insane. (laughs) All right. (laughs) The Japanese beetle, an insect accidentally imported into the United States, was discovered in New Jersey in 1916 when a few shiny beetles of metallic green color were seen in a nursery near Riverton. The beetles at first unrecognized, were finally identified as a common inhabitant of the main islands of Japan. Apparently, they had entered the United States on nursery stock imported before restrictions were established in 1912. From its original point of entrance, the Japanese beetle has spread rather widely throughout many of the states east of the Mississippi, where conditions of temperature and rainfall are suitable for it. Each year, some outward movement beyond the existing boundaries of its distribution usually takes place. In the eastern areas where the beetles have been longest established, attempts have been made to set up natural controls. Where this has been done, the beetle populations have been kept at relatively low levels, as many records attest. Despite the record of reasonable control in eastern areas, the Midwestern states now on the fringe of the beetles' range have launched an attack worthy of the most deadly enemy instead of only a moderately destructive insect, employing the most dangerous chemicals distributed in a manner that exposes large numbers of people their domestic animals, and all wildlife to the poison intended just for the beetle. As a result, these Japanese beetle programs have caused shocking destruction of animal life and have exposed human beings to undeniable hazard. Sections of Michigan, Kentucky, Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, and Missouri are all experiencing a rain of chemicals in the name of beetle control. The Michigan spring was one of the first large-scale attacks on the Japanese beetle from the air. The choice of aldrin, one of the deadliest of all chemicals, was not determined by any peculiar suitability for Japanese beetle control, but simply by the wish to save money. Aldrin was the cheapest of the compounds available. While the state in its official release to the press acknowledged that Aldrin is a poison, it implied that no harm could come to human beings in the heavily populated areas to which the chemical was applied. The official answer to the query, what precautions should I take, was, for you, none. An official of the Federal Aviation Agency was later quoted in a local press to the effect that this is a safe operation. And a representative of the Detroit Department of Parks and Recreation added his assurance that the dust is harmless to humans and will not hurt plants or pets. One must assume that none of these officials had consulted the published and readily available reports of the United States Public Health Service, the Fish and Wildlife Service, and other evidence of the extremely poisonous nature of Aldrin. Acting under the Michigan Pest Control Law, which allows the state to spray indiscriminately without notifying or gaining permission of individual landowners, the low-lying planes began to fly over the Detroit area. The city authorities and the Federal Aviation Agency were immediately besieged by calls from worried citizens. After receiving nearly 800 calls in a single hour, the police begged radio and television stations and newspapers to tell the watchers what they were seeing and advise them it was safe, according to the Detroit News the Federal Aviation Agency's safety officer assured the public that the planes are carefully supervised and are authorized to fly low. In a somewhat mistaken attempt to allay, fe- allay fears, he added that the planes had emergency valves that would allow them to dump their entire load instantaneously. This, fortunately, was not done, but as the planes went about the work, the pellets of insecticide fell on beetles and humans alike. Showers of harmless poison descending on people's People shopping, or going to work, and on children out from school for the lunch hour. Housewives swept the granules from porches and sidewalks, where they have said to look like snow. As pointed out later by the Michigan Audubon Society, in the spaces between shingles on roofs, in eaves troughs, in the cracks in bark and twigs, the little white pellets of aldern and clay, no bigger than a pinhead, were lodged by the millions. When the snow and rain came, every puddle became a possible death potion. Within a few days after the dusting operation, the Detroit Audubon Society began receiving calls about the birds. According to the society's secretary, Miss Ann Boyes, the first indication that the people were concerned about the spray was a call I received on Sunday morning from a woman who reported that coming home from church, she saw an alarming number of dead and dying birds. The spraying there had been done on Thursday. She said there were no birds at all flying in the area, and that she had found at least a dozen dead in her backyard, and that the neighbors had found dead squirrels. All other calls received by Mrs. Boys that day reported a great many dead birds and no live ones. People who had maintained bird feeders said that there were no birds at all at their feeders. Birds picked up in a dying condition showed the typical symptoms of insecticide poisoning. Tremoring, loss of ability to fly, paralysis, convulsions. Nor were birds the only forms of life immediately affected. A local veterinarian reported that his office was full of clients with cats and dogs that had suddenly sickened cats who so meticulously groomed their coats and licked their paws seemed to be most affected. Their illness took the form of severe diarrhea, vomiting, and, and convulsions. The only advice the veterinarian could give his clients was not to let the animals out unnecessarily or to wash the paws promptly if they did so. Despite the insistence of the city county health commissioner that the birds must've been killed by some other kind of spraying and that the outbreak of throat and chest irritations that followed the exposure to Aldrin must have been due to something else. The local health department received a constant stream of complaints. A prominent Detroit internist was called upon to treat four of his patients within an hour after they had been exposed while washing the planes at work. All had similar symptoms, nausea, vomiting, chills, fever, extreme fatigue, and coughing. The Detroit experience has been repeated in many other communities as pressure is mounted to combat the Japanese beetle with chemicals. At Blue Island, Illinois, hundreds of dead and dying birds were picked up. Data collected by bird banders here suggested that 80% of the songbirds were sacrificed. In Joliet, Illinois, some 3,000 acres were treated with heptachlor in 1959. According to reports from a local sportsman's club, the bird population within the treated area was virtually wiped out. Dead rabbits, muskrats, possums, and fish were also found in numbers, and one of the local schools made the collection of insecticide-poisoned birds a science project. That was a Uh, mouthful.
1: That is like, that story is like, as I concentrate on the details, it's like, I'm, I feel like I'm getting a headache. (laughs) Like, like when you were, when, when you were talking about the part where like every puddle becomes like a pot, like a nasty, like potion, like,
0: uh, yeah, you can just picture it, you know, like,
1: like, uh, I was thinking about something too. Like, can you remind me when the Japanese Beatles like scare started, like around like what years that was? Did, it, did you say that? Uh, let me see. I just I mean it doesn't me really it doesn't really matter the years, but like I find it interesting because I almost feel like the the there's definitely like a political effect on like the names of these things like the xenophobia of America of being like, it's a Japanese beetle. And like, (laughs) you remember, you remember when we were kids, there was like a whole scare about like the African hornet or like the African
0: bee or whatever. And it was like, Oh yeah, this bee
1: is going to come and destroy the whole country.
0: (laughs) So it was entered the country in 1912. They, all these, uh, projects i'm talking about were from like 1954 around yeah that time. see that's what i like
1: that's how i feel like i feel like people's reaction to the japanese in post-world war ii were probably like just kill all those japanese beetle you know what i mean it's like this weird yeah. like xenophobic like i definitely think like because i mean how crazy is that book when they're like they're all the officials are like it's fine and then all of the scientists are like it's definitely not fine
0: yeah <laughs> You know, I mean, I know, it's like, they didn't even consult like there, there was public like this was not the first book about the dangers of pesticides. It was you know, going to be, it's going to be, uh on.
1: it's going to be climate change, like, like what's happening right now, where it's like, there's so much stuff where official elected officials are sort of like, eh, it's fine. And then every single scientist in the world is like, no, it's not. We're all going to die. Yes. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm going to talk about that in a second. Like, so some background here, like, because of this book. DDT was eventually banned, Mm -hmm. but it was banned in 1972, um, which is sad because Carson herself, Carson died due to complications with breast cancer in 1964. Mm -hmm. So she was, you know, only alive uh, for a little bit after the book came out to see its effect. But, you know, her book caught the attention of president Kennedy and, you know, he caused the government. I mean, he, um, made it so the government would study pesticides more closely, but, you know, it still took them 10 years to ban something that was pretty clearly dangerous and kind of shows you how slow things can move. Yeah. But it also shows you the process, like...
1: All the birds are dying go, in my town. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, the process, though, it has to go something like individual suspicion by a scientist or a group of scientists or, you know, anyone. And then, you know, it has to go through the whole classic scientific method we all learned about in school and then the crucial part is you know the introduction to the public it has to be something that the public can grasp and hold on to and has to seep into the public consciousness Mm -hmm. and then you know the next step is some almost guaranteed denial and pushback Mm -hmm. and then maybe you get some changes to policy (laughs) right but um some background like about that denial and pushback there was a lot of it for this book like the manufacturers of DDT were pissed they were you mm-hmm. know making a lot of money she's accused of being a communist sympathizer like and an agricultural propagandist mm-hmm. <laughs> and she actually testified in front of a US Senate subcommittee in 1963 where she was you know already in really rough shape due to her battle with cancer mm-hmm. Um not not really calling, not calling for a full ban on pesticides, but just better control, not indiscriminate mm-hmm. spraying. And she argued for the elimination of aerial spraying, which eventually, I mean, essentially removed the rights of the individual to their private property and their physical health. And her argument was like, And this is a quote. um, If the Bill of Rights contains no guarantee that a citizen shall be secure against lethal poisons distributed either by private individuals or by public officials, it is surely only because our forefathers, despite their considerable wisdom and foresight, could conceive of no such problem. Which I think is a really good point. You could apply that to a lot of things. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like
1: going to Walmart and buying automatic weapons.
0: (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I mean, uh, so I feel like I've, I've rambled on here, but that's, I mean, I really like this book. Um, but like, you know, to summarize, I picked it up because I heard it was like Upton Sinclair's the jungle, but for mm-hmm. the environment and right. you know, it didn't disappoint in that sense.
1: Cool. Mm-hmm. Wow. And yeah. So it's
0: got, <laughs> it's got 55 pages of sources at the end <laughs> nice. and it's got some, uh, some nice drawings in there too. <laughs>
1: That's awesome. Yeah, I'm glad you did that book because it's one of those things where I think I saw it mentioned a few times, and then you just see the list of what it affected, and you're like, wow, what? (laughs) Oh, I never heard of this. Yeah. Um, Yeah, awesome. Good job. Thanks,
0: man. So what do you got this week? Okay, mine will probably be a
1: little bit shorter, but um, I am doing a novel that um, is very timely and it is it is um, it's, it concerns some modern politics but it's also basically just like a nice kind of read and a soulful, soulful novel and stuff like that um, my book is the book Autumn by Ali Smith and it came out in 2016 so oh, nice, reset yeah a recent book um and the the fact that it's a recent book is kind of part of its um part of its whole theme but uh just just a really quick stuff about the author this is the only book i've read by ali smith she's been around um for you know she i mean she's 56 years old she was born in inverness scotland i feel connected to her somewhat in that way because the first time i traveled across the ocean i went to London first just to land there, and then I went immediately to Inverness, which is just one of the most beautiful places in the world. And also the home of the Loch Ness Monster, if anyone's curious. <laughs> so it's the home of the Loch Ness Monster and also of nice. of Ali Smith. Um, she is a very, light, like, like a, a sort of an academic person, a very well-educated person, but she was also um, born to working class parents. She was raised in a council house in Inverness. Um, the, the American equivalent is sort of like if you were in the projects or, you know, something like that. Um, but she has, you know, since the eight, basically since the late eighties, she started writing plays at the Edinburgh fringe festival, which is like a huge, um, it's like one of the world's largest media festivals. It happens in Edinburgh, Scotland every year. um, it's really crazy I've been to it and I would recommend it to anybody um,
0: if you can stay now, with I have chaos. I' have been lectured by us I've been lectured by a Scott that it's Edinburgh Edinburgh
1: and <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah I'll butcher a few things in here despite my <laughs>
1: despite me living in the UK for a little bit I'll butcher a few things here um, <laughs> but yeah so she she started doing plays at the Fringe festival then she started getting into short story collections and also now she's into novels. Um, I really like the titles of some of her novels, Um, even though I've only read Autumn. uh, One of her 2011 books is called There But For The. Uh, Another one is called How To Be Both. Uh, She comes to me also through the theme uh, the same way that I found uh, Paul Beattie. I kind of just had my eyes on that Man Booker Prize list. I don't think that she's ever been awarded the Man Booker Prize, but she's been short. Her novels have been shortlisted several times. Um, but I'll just dive straight into autumn. Um, autumn is one of, it's the first of a planned four season cycle. So there's going to be four books. The next one is winter. Winter already came out in 2017. It's sitting on my bookshelf right now because I loved autumn so much that I needed to buy winter. Um, but I feel like I had a unique beginning um with the book Autumn because um I can say that I I started this book and probably around and it took me about 30 pages to fall in love um which for me was was you know really interesting um but I would say to anybody who isn't completely in love with the first part, uh, just keep going because it really pays off. Um, I I hate to say like a negative thing about anything about a book, but that was just my reaction to this book when I was first reading it, I was kind of just like not really down with the first chapter and I was like, what the hell is going on? It had some, we've talked before a little bit about my slight distaste for magical realism, but I felt Mm -hmm. some things were going off the rails like right from the beginning, but then it all started to make sense.
0: It definitely you stuck also stuck with it, though. I stuck with it, yeah.
1: Always You're like Larry
0: David. Yeah. Go <laughs> down I, with the ship.
1: Yeah. Once I read one page of a 500 page doesn't he say that? One page of a 500 page <laughs> book, yeah. I got to do it. Um, go down with the ship. I have friends. Yeah. 40 years. I hate them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, no. Uh, I actually don't always recommend that with books, but this no, book no, no, is no. definitely good.
0: Um, it's good when it pays off, though.
1: Yes, absolutely. So one of the one of the things that, and I said that it's sort of important that this book is a new book or a timely book, is because this book is sort of being very celebrated in the UK as what uh, I think you know, you know how important are critics, you know, quotes and stuff like that. But one of the quotes is that it was the one of the first and most um, brilliantly achieved post Brexit novel. So, basically, this book came out, even though it was in development in Allie Smith's mind for you know she basically said, "I've been wanting to write a seasonal cycle for twenty years
0: yeah. um
1: she came out it, it she came out with the book um basically right after or maybe right on the eve, but basically around the time that the brexit vote set you know it, in the UK, it was either we're going to remain in the EU or we're going to leave, um, and and become our own sort of independent nation. So, and throughout this, I might say remain or leave. So that basically means there's people still living in the UK today who support the remain movement, which means that they want to stay within the European Union, and then there's mm-hmm. other people that you would call leavers that would be people who want to leave the European Union and um dare i say that uh that there there could be a comparison between you know leavers and the conservatives here in America um there's there's a lot of sort of stater, saber rattling for um being an independent country but it is a largely conservative movement um, that is very concerned. Uh, a, a lot of people who are very concerned about immigration who have never met an immigrant. Um, yes. so, um, <laughs> so, uh, but, but the thing about Autumn coming out is that it's, you know, she's such a soulful writer. She's a great writer. I'm going to read some quotes from the book, but it's just one of those things where, wow, a great novel has hit us but it also has theme like Brexit themes, um, themes of, of leaving uh, the EU. Uh, I'll read the plot summary quickly from Wikipedia just to give you a sense of how multi-layered it is. Um, Daniel Gluck is a 101-year-old former songwriter. He lies asleep dreaming in his care home. He's regularly visited by 32-year-old Elizabeth Demand, who had been his next door neighbor as a young child her mother disapproved of their early relationship based on her belief that daniel was gay but elizabeth had nevertheless formed a close bond with him and been inspired by his descriptions of works of art uh so there's a lot of kind of him describing these different works of art as a consequence of her of his influence on her elizabeth is now a junior arts lecturer lecturer at the london university at a London university, a major character in the novel is also the long dead '60s pop artist Pauline Body, the subject of Elizabeth's graduate school thesis. So she's basically taking some time at home to write her thesis, um, and also she she comes back home and she's reflecting on her old neighbor neighbor Daniel, who's basically in a in a coma. Um, okay. And the story largely alternates between Daniel's prolonged dreams as he edges closer to death and Elizabeth's recollections of the origins of their friendship and its repercussions in her relationship with her mother. Um, So
0: dream, dream logic, dream dream logic.
1: logic. Yeah. So that is something that I think you've opened my eyes to more and I'm, and I'm ready to get more into the book because that's what was happening in this book. The way that it opens is his dreams and mm-hmm. and I was sort of like not aware of that when I was reading it, and I was like, well, "What the hell am I reading?" You know, like like is it like <laughs> what is going on? But then eventually, it kind of all came into context. So for me, it was a hard start, but I'm I'm getting, thanks to the third policeman, I think I'm getting more and more yeah. into into dream logic. <laughs>
0: no rules, no, <laughs> no structure. R-
1: yeah, no structure. Do it. Yeah. So make
0: it interesting. Yeah. Love so. It. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, so there's some of that going on, but like everything that I just said to you, there was no mention of Brexit in there. There was no mention of politics in there, but it does sort of seep its way into her writing. Um, Allie Smith, it's sort of interesting. She commented, I think, on her 2014 book called How to Be Both. Um, this novel was published by a a, um, a publishing company called uh, a publishing house called Hamish Hamilton. And she gives them credit because she says basically when she published How to Be Both, she was surprised how quickly they put it together. She had a lot of like the, the team had a lot of faith in her. But then also she was really surprised, like, hey, I've been writing for a long time. And like my novel came out like quickly, which is not something that you hear very often. You know what I mean? No, no um, especially hashtag writing community right exactly so (laughs) it's almost you know to be prescient you have to you know in the in the old days you had to be you know writing a you know you had to be nostradamus writing something 20 years before its time but so she basically credits some of its timeliness to saying hey like hamish hamilton like put my book out fast which is yeah which is a great position to be in and that's why it was so timely for um for autumn to come out Um, It's just a great book. Like I always say with all books, it's really about the style of the writing. You're going to get you're going to be in love with the characters. Her mom is like a really interesting character. I think that um, Ali Smith, the the timing of autumn, it's one of those books that has a very good um, sense of she's very knowledgeable about the time in her character's life that she's talking about, because it's this weird period in this woman's life where she's going back home. She's trying to complete her thesis. Um, Something that I learned that was autobiographical about Allie Smith that really connected me to this book even more is that um, when she was in the University of Strathclyde, which I know I butchered that um, pronunciation as well, In the 90s, she um, she left um, part of her university and returned to Cambridge because of chronic fatigue syndrome. So basically, she was just like completely worn out and exhausted, probably yeah. suffering with depression and stuff like that. So I almost feel like there are notes of that in this book where it's like this this woman who's a junior lecturer at an arts college in London is coming back to her her home environment. And it's just such a, it's like a, it, you know, I think she's dealing with fatigue and emotions and, and uh, there are like sort of hints that her mom is like a lever sort of like conservative, but her mom is also discovering her own um, narrative for how this, like this disconnect between politicians and citizens and stuff is really affecting things. And, and it's also, mm-hmm. it's a really good narrative too. Like I mentioned in the plot summary, um, her, her neighbor, Daniel Gluck, she was like his, you know, her, her her. it was a childhood friend of hers, but he was, you know, at the time, he was, you know, already 70 or 80 years old or something like that. So yeah. that he has sort of a, a loving relationship with this young girl. And he kind of in a weird way he he takes risks um they have conversations about paintings about that have that feature naked men and women and stuff like that and when her mother finds out about that it's just you know shut it down like this is not yeah, yeah. you know this is not safe this is not whatever and then as as like life develops throughout the novel and it's a short book too 272 pages um as like life you know, evolves through the book, you see, you start to see like, oh, her mom has a female friend that she seems to be sort of like almost half romantic with. And like, what's that going like? What's that the deal with that? And uh, there's just a lot of really sort of interesting insights. Um, I think, you know, there's a few short quotes from the book that are really good. Um, One of Daniel's quotes from the book is lifelong friends. Sometimes we wait a lifetime for them. So basically, he's saying, you know, oh, I befriended this young girl who was my neighbor, but I didn't meet her. She's my lifelong friend, but I didn't meet her until I was 70. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so it's like, yeah, sort of interesting. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of great, succinct, you know, she's a playwright. She's a she's a playwright. She's also written some poetry. So there's great mm-hmm. quotes in here. Like um, one that I think is really great is. uh Is it possible, he said, to be in love, not with someone, but with their eyes? I mean, with how eyes that aren't yours let you see where you are and who you are. So, you know, there's lots of little great sort of tidbits about that, a lot of things about friendship and stuff. But then also, there's a lot of great modernity in there. Um, I'll I'll read one of the sections that's a little bit more political, and this is like a little bit of a longer paragraph. Okay, Uh, cool. So right now we're in the middle of an emotional half dream narrative. We've learned about the main character and everything. And uh, here we go. So all across the country, people felt it was the wrong thing. All across the country, people felt it was the right thing. All across the country, people felt they would really lost and all across the country. People felt they'd really won all across the country. People felt they'd done the right thing and other people had done the wrong thing. All across the country people looked up on Google, what is EU? All across the country people looked up on Google, move to Scotland. All across the country, people looked up Google, Irish passport applications. And all across the country, people called other people cunts. All across the country, people felt unsafe. All across the country, people were laughing their heads off. All across the country people felt legitimized. People felt bereaved and shocked. All across the country people felt righteous. All across the country people felt sick. All across the country people felt history at their shoulder. People felt history meant nothing. All across the country people felt like they counted for nothing. People had pinned their hopes on it. All across the country people waved flags in the rain. People drew Swastika graffiti. All across the country people threatened other people and all across the country people told people to leave. All across the country the media was insane, and politicians lied. All across the country, politicians fell apart. And all across the country, politicians vanished. So um, it's she's sort of driving home and saying all across the country a million times and giving a lot of context to, um, you know, there's just something going on in the UK right now. Maybe not too dissimilar from the United States where there's like a massive disconnect between like the people who are being represented and like how people are feeling. And um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of existential crisis in the UK right now um, because um, you know, it basically comes up as a topic of conversation every day. Like there was this referendum where, you know, it was something crazy like 51 versus 50% decided to leave. So we're going to leave the EU. And then every day, people say well we should just have another referendum because now that we know what it means we'll vote another way and of yeah. <laughs> course and of course now you know every single sort of democratic scholar in the world is saying well what does that mean when you just say oh we didn't vote the right way let's vote again um, <laughs> and and it really is true i mean people really you know it came out all across the internet you know memes galore and all crazy stuff like that but it really is true that after the you know brexit vote and stuff like that there was a spike in google searches for like what is the eu (laughs) and like yeah what is you know what did we and like and like there's dozens like millions of people being like should i move to scotland should i get my irish passport or whatever and there and you know she weaves in a lot of really interesting details like um because she's home from london she starts to do all of the, the main character um The main character, Elizabeth Demand, she starts to do like a bunch of stuff that you would normally do when you go to your hometown, like she's redoing her passport and stuff like that. So she has all of these sort of interesting inter... I think think that um, it speaks to sort of like an urban voice. I've certainly felt this living in cities sometimes where... I come back to like a suburban environment and you do something weird. Like I think she goes to the post office and she has to like take care of something with her passport and like just the grinding monotony of how it makes absolutely no sense what she has to do in this new (laughs) uh, post Brexit. You know, she, I think that there's like some great scene where she's like trying to, she's trying to get the dimensions of her passport photo correct or something like that. And she's just like, what the hell is going on? Like we all have cell phones that have, you know, that can crop (laughs) a photo and she's sitting there with like a ruler. Um, It's, it's sort of funny. Um, Yeah. That's like a really great scene in the book. And um, yeah, I mean, there's just, there's, there's a lot of emotions. There's a lot of stuff running high, but like I said, I think it's, I think she's incredibly emotionally mature in the area of time that she selected to write about this person's life, um, going back home. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, there are, there are other quotes that are sort of like that all across the country. One, there's another one where she says, you know, and I won't read the whole thing, but it's just like, you know, I'm tired of news. I'm tired of the way things are, They make things spectacular that aren't and deal so simplistically with what's truly appalling. I'm tired of vitriol and anger. I'm tired of people not caring whether they're being lied to anymore. I'm tired of being made to feel this fearful. Um, I just jumped around one of her paragraphs a little bit. So maybe she'll, you know, listen to the podcast and hate me. But we'll cross (laughs) that bridge when we come to it. Um, You know, but... Intermix, yeah, paraphrase <laughs> and intermixed with other great quotes. Like uh, another one here is: "Is there any? Is there never any escaping the junk shop of the self?" Um. So yeah, I mean, it's just it's a great book. It's an easy read. I think I literally read it on a plane. Um, it's one of those books that you are going to find in the airport because it's so highly acclaimed, but also very new, um, and. Uh, You know, it also has a mix. I've talked on on the podcast before about how I love delving a little bit into art criticism as part of a a fictional narrative. And, uh, you know, she's writing, the the main character is writing her thesis on Pauline Body B-O-T-Y, who was uh, a founder of the British pop art movement, but she's basically like a you know, having sort of a modern resurgence, but was um, one of the only kind of like female painters in the British, like Britpop movement kind of thing. And, yeah. uh, and that her hometown friend, the guy who is uh, basically in a coma kind of uh she's slowly discovering that he also had a relationship to her work um it also has a lot of stuff uh, a lot of art criticism about collage which is something that i'm not necessarily i don't necessarily gravitate towards but when you read such passionate writing about about collage and and stuff like that um it really comes through um So yeah, there's like some art criticism in there. It's like a nice emotional book. And it's just definitely a book that I would recommend to anyone. Allie Smith, Autumn. And I'm really looking forward to reading Winter. I mean, as soon as... That's a book that I bought uh, brand new and crisp because uh, I was ready to read it. I actually bought a hardcover for you, Allie Smith. So I'll suffer through reading a hardcover just for the brilliant words. So, yeah, uh basically Ali Smith, uh book came out in 2016 and it's I would definitely recommend it.
0: Nice. And you know, cuz you're talking about this, I mean it's not it's not connected to anything other than the title and the fact that you say that um she's going to come out with a, you know, season series. Mm-hmm. It make it's making me think of that movie um Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter and Spring. Yeah, spring, remember that summer, one? Fall, Winter, Spring. Yeah, great movie. Yeah, dude. That's our, like, this is just some background into our, like, uh, I don't know, hanging out in high school. We Media history. These... Yeah. So uh, South Korean films, like, uh, what's the direct, Kim, Ka- Kim, Kaiduk Kaiduk. Kim, Kim, yeah, yep. yeah. He also directed, um, Address Unknown. Address Unknown. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder if anyone else in the world has seen oh people have <laughs> seen people this. people
1: have seen those i've run into people out in the out in this crazy world that appreciate kim kai he also he also made a movie called three iron which is very good um yeah he's a, he's an excellent director but springs you you are right spring summer fall winter spring like a seasonal cycle um yeah yeah the
0: movie rocks yeah very good <laughs> all right yeah good job man
1: cool well, guys, thanks, uh, everybody who's listening. Thanks for listening. This has been Shitty Book Reports. You can email us at uh, sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also find us, SBR the Podcast, on Instagram, Spotify, Twitter, and SoundCloud. Um, see you next time. See ya.